Let's uh, read God's Word together. We're, we've been starting on the Gospel of Mark, and we're reading the second chapter um, this week um, from the first verse. Let's hear the Word of the Lord as we find it in this record of the ministry of Jesus. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that He had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door, and He preached the Word to them. Some men came bringing Him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get to Him, um, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowering the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, He said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in His spirit that this is what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up, take your mat, and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. He got up, took his mat, and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone, and they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. Once again, Jesus went outside beside the lake, and a large crowd came to Him, and they began to teach them. As He walked along, He saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and He got up and followed Him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Him and His disciples, for there were many who followed Him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw Him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked His disciples, why does He eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners. Amen. And thanks be to God for His Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that as we reflect on Your Word this morning, it wouldn't just be an exercise of the mind, but You would speak to us, for we are the sick who need Your healing. Amen. I said to you before, what, 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 to encourage you to try to spend some time and read through the Gospel of Mark. I won't ask who's done that, because you might tell me, fine. Um, but it's, it's really good to do that, because sometimes one of the things the church does in, in preaching is it, it takes little passages out, uh, and it spends a bit of time on them. Uh, and they are designed, in God's Word, into books and, and into order. I mean, the, chapter 2 began with the little words that says, a few days later. Now, that's a clue 
that actually we're going to understand this story better if we put it into where it is in the book. Um, it, it helps us to understand it um, and work out where it's there. And what's going on here, if we pay attention to it, is that as Jesus is starting His ministry, and we looked how He began in chapter 1, and suddenly there's crowds. Crowds and crowds and crowds and crowds of people. Now, it's interesting that as you read right through the gospel, what you'll find is that the crowds diminish as Jesus begins to point towards the cross until eventually He will die completely alone. But the crowds are there at the start of the ministry. People are everywhere. And Mark's quite clear about why they're coming. And they're coming, partly it's to do with the teaching, but partly and mainly it seems to be to do with the healing. Folk are thinking, this is what we need. And so they're bringing friends. Some of them are coming to see what will happen. Some of them are coming because they need. The crowds are there all the time. Jesus started the ministry in chapter 1 preaching in a synagogue and there he healed a man, and suddenly there's more people. So he sort of came out of the synagogue, went for lunch to, to Simon's house, which was in Capernaum, where, where Simon lived, uh, and there was, was Simon's mother-in-law, and he, he quietly healed her. But the next thing he knew, there was hundreds of people at the door with more folk, and the crowds and the crowds and the crowds are coming. Now, you might have thought, this is a real success. Imagine that. We started a new ministry, new minister on the scene, and there's crowds coming from the community. Yeah, fantastic. Church of Scotland could only wish for that, couldn't they? But there's a problem that Mark is spelling out. And we see it a little bit in the first chapter. At one point when they're in Capernaum with all these crowds, Jesus sort of runs away. And he goes out to a solitary place just outside the town. And Simon comes rushing up to him and says, Jesus, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, we need to go somewhere else because I came to preach. I didn't just come to give people stuff. I came to preach. And then we find at the end of the chapter, Jesus actually avoiding the towns because he's getting mobbed with people with the healing. And he came to preach. One of the things that we learn from this is that, yeah, healing is important. If you read the Gospels, there's no getting away from that. As Jesus meets people in their brokenness, they matter body, mind, and spirit. This isn't just all about their eternal souls, but at the same time, Jesus is incredibly focused on why He's come. Repent and believe the good news. And He's not going to get into something that is going to make that main point never heard. I've been very much aware as I've been looking uh, as part of what I'm doing for presbytery at the mission of congregations that we're doing lots of great things. There's fantastic things happening in, in, in church halls all over the place. People are being fed. All sorts of wonderful things are happening. But sometimes we're losing the centrality of why we're there, what it is that through all these important things, we're trying to communicate the message of the gospel that is in Jesus Christ. There's a second problem here, and that problem is, is, is this, that as all these crowds gather around Jesus, all these people here, some are curious. Some are there for other reasons. It's very interesting. When you read this passage carefully, you suddenly find these teachers of the law, and it may be a mobbed house, but somehow they found a seat. 
They've found a seat, uh, and they're not there to be healed. Uh, they're not there to hear the gospel. They're here to check it out, see it's all right, to do a risk assessment, and they managed to find a seat. Um, but there, we're told simply, there was no room left even outside the door. And in this little snippet, what we've got is a man who has needs, some people who want to bring him to Jesus, and they do that in the conviction that whatever his needs are, Jesus is the answer. And they can't get through because there are people standing in the way. Lots of people in the way, and none of them move. Not the people that are sitting, not the people at the door, none of them move. And it's only because those four friends are literally willing to tear the roof down, forget the risk assessment, those four friends are willing to alter the building. Those four friends are willing to do the impossible by carrying someone up the stairwells that he comes to Jesus. And here, I, I think, is a basic question we could explore much more. Which group of people are we when we're coming to worship and we're coming around Jesus? Are we the people who are there to get whatever we want, but we're not noticing that in getting whatever we want, we're standing in the way of other folk. And I have to say, in churches, sometimes you do get that folk that are so obsessed with, I want it my way, and, and my friends, and uh, they're ignoring the fact that there's actually somebody else that's come with the real need to find Jesus, and they're not helping. Or are we like those four friends whose mission is to bring that person to find Jesus. That's all that matters. Everything else can get out of the way. It's interesting when Jesus called followers, He said two things to them. Remember in chapter 1, Simon, Andrew, they were fishermen. Jesus says two things to them. He says, follow me, and immediately He says, and I will make you fishers of men. So, what He says is, come and follow me, but don't just come that you might learn stuff, and you might, you, you, you might be my followers, and you might be Christians, and you might enjoy church, and all these other things. He says, the purpose of all of that is other people, that they might encounter me. That's what the church is about. We are about mission. Folks sometimes say it, it needs to be about us as well. Yes, but it's about us being about mission. That's the calling right from the start. So, two things to reflect on. But here's the main thing, because there is a danger that I do exactly what I've said the passage tells us not to do, is that as I go into a little flight of fancy about what we're saying about mission, rather than come to the main point of this passage. The man comes through the roof, Jesus takes a look at him, and once he's got the plaster at his hair, he says, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we're so familiar with that passage that we have to do the sort of, huh? And if the man, we don't have what the man said, he might have responded, wait a minute, Jesus, I've got some more immediate problems. I can't walk. I can't get a job. I've got all the problems that go with that. And, and the, I wonder that the men who have brought Jesus, brought this man on the map might have said, that, Jesus, that's not why we brought him. Come on, you've healed all these other folk. He's got a need. It'll change his life. It'll transform his life. If he could walk, he could have a job. He could have friends. He could, he could, have, he could look after his family. He could do all sorts of things that are possible. You could completely transform his life. You're, you're missing the point, Jesus, with that religious stuff. You know, 
This isn't the only time this emerges. There's a, there's a point in John's gospel where a blind man is brought to Jesus. And there's the blind man standing before Jesus. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the man says, I, 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 I want to see. <laughs> it's as if Jesus has missed the whole point. Has he? I don't think so. See, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's going deeper. We'll get to the suffering, as important as that is. We'll get to the mobility issues. We'll get to the isolation. Those things matter, and you can't read the gospel right through without realizing how much those things matter to Jesus, inclusion and, uh, and mobility and, uh, and, and health and well-being. But Jesus says the main thing is your relationship with your Creator. The main thing, and the thing I'm going to focus on, is the deep thing, is the heart. You know, when you compose a sermon and you want to say something that's deep, sometimes what we preachers do is we start with a joke and, uh, and a bit of background and 20 minutes into the sermon, we finally get to the point. Jesus just goes straight there, bang. Son, your sins are forgiven. Straight to the point, right there. And it leaves the man and the four men and us, the reader and the Pharisees and everybody else, confused. What's going on here? Well, again, we have to dig a little bit in, but I wonder that that paralyzed man perhaps come thinking this, I want to walk. I really want to walk. If I could walk, everything else would be fine. If I walk, I could have a job. If I walk, I could have friends. If I walk, I could go to the temple. If I walk, I could have a holiday. If I walk, I'd be happy. If I walk, I'd never be miserable again. I'd never complain again. If I could walk, I would know that God loved me. If I could walk, then I would be full of joy for all of my life. It would be great. Here's the problem. Hands up everybody here who can walk. Hands up everybody here for whom all those things that I've just said are always true. full of joy, always happy, never miserable, never complain, know that God loves you every minute of every day because you can walk. It's not true, is it? And here's the reality. The discontent of our soul is deeper than the external things that we think will bring us joy. See, on the surface of it, we always look and see. I want to be healthy, I want to be wealthy, I want to be wise. If I had these things, if I didn't have this problem, if I had the job, if the problem was sorted, I would be content. And the truth is, I, you might be for five minutes, maybe a month, and then the discontent would start again. Now, if you don't believe what I'm saying, just think about this. Celebrities. Whether it's famous politicians or musicians or footballers, it doesn't really matter. The story is the same, isn't it? These are the people that have achieved everything. 
These are the people whose careers have been a success, whatever we might think of them, <laughs> right? They are at the top of the game. They have all the fame that anybody would ever want. They have all the, the, the perfection. They usually have the perfect bodies. They have the best medical care. They can go where they want, fly where they want, do what they want, be listened to whatever their opinion is on any subject that they care to speak about, even when they know nothing about it. They are really at the top of the game, and they always have the perfect spouses. They are folk that you might say are living the dream. And then we look at our lives, and we think, if I could just have a wee bit of that. And I may not be as ambitious enough to want to be at the top of the game, but, you know, if my garden was a wee bit better, it'd be nice. And if I had uh, my relationships sorted out, or a bit more education, or all these other things, I would be happy too. But here's the thing about that whole idea of, if I get what I want, all my problems disappear. Think about those celebrities. They have got it all. Would you say that celebrities as a group are the most content, most well-rounded, uh, most happy people in the world today. Because by the logic that we have, that if we only had a wee bit more, we'd be even happier. If we only had a bit more sorted, if we only had a bit more health, our lives would be content, then those folk should be always happy. But what do you look at as a group? Among them you find addictions, early deaths, Marriage failures. Now, that's part of all of society, but you cannot find a biography on Wikipedia of any actor or actress, just about, who isn't got a list of spouses. Relationship failures, estranged children, psychological problems, legal disputes, criminal records, highest almost among that group of people, certainly not any lower. Well, now, what's my point? I'm not really getting at celebrities. There will be some fairly rounded individuals that are doing all right in them as there are any other point of society. My point is this, that this idea that our content of our hearts comes. Am I doing something wrong here? Well, go to stand still and use this, and, I'll be, and Colin will be happy <laughs> for a minute. Right, okay. The idea there is that. But actually, I, I suspect one of the reasons that celebrities are, are so miserable is, is very often is two things. One is that these things don't make them happier long-term than anyone else. And the other is that actually they have a double problem because they have the despair. Because the rest of us think life could get better. They know that it's got to the top. There's nowhere to go and it still hurts. You know, they say the grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, I was looking at that on the internet the other day, and, and so many people have added things like that to say that's because somebody else has nicked all the fertilizer, or, or maybe you haven't done enough to fertilize the ground where you are. But you know, the, the issue is, I think, much more this. The problem isn't that the grass is always greener on the other side. The problem is when you go to the other side, even if the grass is greener, you're not any happier because you took yourself there too. You get to a new place and you find you're the same person. 
And we've all done that, haven't we? If I tidy my room, my mind will be clearer. And what do you find when you tidy your room? You're still the one that's sitting in the middle of it. The person that you were before. The issue isn't the color of the grass. The issue is the head of the person that's stuck on what color the grass should be. Romans chapter 1, Paul suggests that when people have desires, God sometimes just gives them what they want because that will teach them. Jesus isn't playing that game here. The man says, I need help and my goal is to walk again. And Jesus says, I don't want to be your helper. I want to be your savior. I'm not here to be the religion that helps you get on a little bit better with life. I'm here to be the savior that deals with a broken-hearted person right in the center of it and says, not you need to meet your goals, but you need to have your goals of your heart transformed. Child, child, your sins are forgiven. Know your father loves you and know that your guilt is taken from you. I am here to offer you a new reality with your creator where even knowing as he does all your inadequacies, all your failures, all your deep hearts, all the things that you can't seem to change, he deals with them and he offers you forgiveness child to a father. It's interesting that the teachers of the law understand all of this because they say this is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins and they are right as they say that. It's interesting Jesus doesn't hear them saying it. He reads their WhatsApps. He knows what's going on in their heads. Just as he knew exactly what was going on in the heart and the mind and the soul of that man on that mat. And they are right. It's nuts for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven. If Tom, Dick and Harry go out and Tom punches Dick and Harry says I forgive you, it's preposterous. It's preposterous. You can only forgive sins against you. Harry can't forgive a sin against Dick. Unless, of course, what he's saying is every sin you've committed is against me. Because I am the creator of that person you've hurt, as I am yours. I am the one who loves them beyond all love. I am the one who made them in my image. And that's what they understand at that point. That's what Jesus is saying at that point. I am able to forgive sins. He then says something really strange. He says, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up, take up your mat and walk? Let me ask you, which is easier to say? If I said, if I said your sins are forgiven, well, you might think that's a bit weird, but it could be true. But if I say here today, get up, take up your mat and walk, to someone that's paralyzed, I'm really putting it on the line, am I? Because if they don't, I'm sort of a fraud. And it's obvious. 
So at a human level, actually, it's easier to say sins are forgiven than it is to say get up and walk. Got me? Because if I say that, well, I'm, who, who knows? But what Jesus is saying at that human level is, I'm going to do the harder thing by healing this man to show you that I can forgive sins. But of course, there's another level, a theological level, and that's this. There's lots of healers in the world. There's lots of healers in antiquity. There are lots of healers in the world today. There's science and medical professions and all sorts of things. But there's only one person that can forgive sins. There's only one person that can address the heart problem. And that's the hard bit. Because that's God's bit. And that's the hard bit because that's costly. And that's the hard bit because that needs love that goes beyond everything else. And the whole gospel will be about that. For it will come to the end where Jesus says, Father, forgive them. And we will see the cost, the hardness of what Jesus will do in love to bring that forgiveness that can change, can change and transform our hearts. And this, this is the gospel. And it's not just words, because it has very practical social effects too, and we see that in the next passages. The tax collector called to be a disciple. And if the tax collector can be called to be a disciple, if the tax collector can be forgiven, if the tax collector can be given a new life, then so can each one of us. And that's the gospel. The healing of your hearts and your desires. And Peter will know it. We said before that Mark is often seen as Peter's memoirs being written down. Because where does it end? It ends in the Garden of Gethsemane where the failure of the disciples is absolute. And they run away and they desert. The brokenness that they must have known after that happened. Peter running away ashamed in tears. And then Jesus dying on the cross just hours later. Oh, he knew what that was about. The cost of what Jesus did. And that's what he does as he looks at this man, the depth, taking him down into the deeper places of discontent in his heart that he might be healed. This is the gospel. Yes, body, mind, and soul. Yes, the Jesus who comes to transform the political orders. Yes, the Jesus who comes that we might help and feed the hungry, and he will do that as we do that as a church. These things are important. They are signs of what God is doing as he is renewing all things. But God goes to the depth that no political system, no welfare state can ever go to of the broken hearts that we have, for we are estranged from our Creator Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And this is the gospel of the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And may we know it today.